Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, higher COVID case growth looks like Toronto and Peel's lockdown orders are not proving to be effective. Dr. Michael Warner, head of ICU at the Michael Guerin Hospital, can speak to the new modeling there. Canada Post is seeing completely unprecedented number of transactions as COVID encourages more online shopping and families trying to connect with family members during the holidays. John Hamilton from Canada Post is going to talk to us about that. And the Fraser Institute has documented wait times across Canada's healthcare system. It's not a pretty picture, but what can we do to improve it? Bacchus Barua, Associate Director of Public Policy with the Fraser Institute, has more on that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government's uh, current coronavirus lockdown restrictions in areas like Toronto and Peel are not as effective as the previous provincial lockdown. That's according to the official stats and an announcement they made yesterday with Dr. David Williams, Ontario's chief medical officer, and a number of other uh, leading officials about that. So where do we go? Because we're not trending in the right way at all. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Michael Warner. Uh, Dr. Warner is the head of ICU with Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, Doctor, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. I feel like we're in the, uh, the middle of a, a, a floodgate has just opened here. We're seeing new cases. We're seeing more hospitalizations. Uh, sadly, in this area, we're seeing more people dying than we did in the last couple of months as well. Uh, yet there is a quasi-lockdown here and, and since we're in a red zone and certainly a, a total lockdown in Toronto and Peel. Why are the numbers still going up, Doctor? Well, the numbers are really concerning. And I'd say that the lockdown that we have even in Toronto and Peel is, is not even close to what we had back in March. And, and the red zone restrictions, as you know, people can still participate in activities that are known uh, to spread, spread COVID-19, including gyms, indoor dining, uh, personal care services, etc. Uh, I don't underestimate the impact this is having on businesses, but this is a serious uh, medical situation. When I'm on the streets of Toronto during the day, uh, you know, there's traffic. There's lots of traffic, way more traffic than there was back in March. And I'm not sure where people are going, but I'm concerned that they're traveling from the lockdown regions to the adjacent regions uh, that don't have the same restrictions and engaging in those activities they're not supposed to be engaging in in their own region. I think that could be a root of the problem. Uh, I mean, schools are also open, and I think it's important that schools open, but the government has not proven that they are safe because they haven't done any surveillance testing beyond uh, Thorncliffe Park uh, Elementary School near my hospital, which showed about 35 people had asymptomatic COVID. So, uh, you know, I think there are a number of reasons, but people are interacting too much, and that's how COVID spreads, and it will continue to spread unless interactions become more limited. You raise an interesting point, and since uh, you're talking about the school that's right in your neighborhood there by the hospital, I wanted to ask you about that, because I'm hearing two t- different lines of thought about that. Uh, one is when they look at some of these areas, and, and that one that you've just identified was considered to be a hot zone, uh, and, and they're saying, well, no wonder you're going to see more asymptomatic cases in school because it's a hot zone. But uh, it, I've heard other experts that have said, well, <laughs> it's a hot zone because they're not paying attention to the school numbers, and, and the kids are asymptomatic, so they may not show any symptoms, but they're certainly spreading the virus, and maybe that's going contributing it to be a hot zone. Is, is is it one or the other, or is there a combination of both going on here? Okay, well, I think, I mean, the government has and sometimes, some points, tried to spin this in a way that makes things look better than they are. So the 16% positivity in Thorncliffe Park area, are that's for people who are sent to an assessment center because they're known contacts of COVID and they get tested, or they have symptoms of COVID. That population is completely different from the kid who has no symptoms or staff member who has no symptoms, who's just... You know, tested on a volunteer basis. And the fact that those numbers are different um, 
is meaningful, but what's more meaningful is that the positivity rate was over 4% in the people who were tested. And what we need to figure out is, are cases spreading from school to the community, from community to school, or within school? We simply don't have that information yet, but uh, that's what's really important. But if you're familiar with that area, uh, most of these children live in apartment buildings, in congregate settings with perhaps multi-generations. It's their parents and grandparents who end up in my ICU. Uh, so if, if those kids have cases and they're asymptomatic, it's their family who is going to be put at risk because of it. And therein lies the problem, which I guess begs the question, where are the analytics in all this that, that we've heard that other jurisdictions that, that have done well with this, New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, places like that, uh, they're, they're doing the contact tracing, they're tracking the, the virus, and they're tracking what's happening with it, uh, and you, you're absolutely right uh, to your point. Uh, they're being much more stringent about the restrictions they put on vis-a-vis travel and other things. Uh, we seem to be doing an awful lot of stuff here in half measures, Doctor. Well, we're chasing our tail, and I think that's the challenge. So two months ago was the time when we had the opportunity for the surgical approach that the government has has discussed, which I think would have made a lot of sense. A lockdown is a hammer. It it doesn't make sense for a lot of businesses, but it's the only tool we have left to kind of save us right now. So um, we're not doing contact tracing outside of Congress settings in Toronto. They're not doing contact tracing in Peel. They're underwater, public health. They're working so hard. But uh, it's actually like they're treading water and somebody's put it pushing their head down because they just can't keep up. And when you can't keep up, you have to do things that are imperfect, which means um, not having the analytics, not making evidence-based decisions necessarily, which makes the public feel like they're, they're unsure whether what they're being asked to do makes sense. Unfortunately, we really all have to kind of adhere to public health measures, even if they may not make sense to you or for your business, because we're in such deep trouble in certain areas of the GTA. And until we get our feet back under us, we won't be able to do things that make more sense and look at analytics and have a tailored surgical approach to public health restrictions. We just, there's too much COVID in the community right now to do that. Well, and, and we've certainly changed our attitude from the springtime, haven't we? Um, you know, the, the mantra back in March and April was, well, we're all in this together. I'm not so sure we are anymore uh, because there are people that have been adversely affected by some of the measures taken, and they're simply saying, hey, you're, you're treating me unfairly. I, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in the game anymore, or at least I don't want to be. Uh, and when you've got a fractured attitude like that, it's going to be very, very difficult to try to get this under control. Listen, people are entitled to make a living and to protect their family and have a roof over their head and food on their table. And I think the government needs to play a role in making sure that people and businesses are adequately supported. And if that means increases taxes, increasing taxes for people like me who are making a living, I would welcome that. And that's the government's role, to make sure people are safe and protected, both from a healthcare perspective, but also uh, from a financial stability perspective. COVID fatigue is real, but I can tell you that you know, just an anecdote, this disease is destroying families. I've had members of the same family in my ICU, five beds apart, you know, both struggling to breathe and communicating on Zoom as to whether or not they want to be intubated. I mean, that's real. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Today, we have 247 patients in Ontario ICUs with COVID-19. We added 31 overnight. The last time we had 31 cases added was on April 2nd. We've only breached the 30 mark twice in this pandemic so far. We will hit 300 by Christmas. Our peak was 283 on April 12th. So the situation is getting out of control, and it is you know, heterogene- heterogeneous. So there are parts of Ontario where there's almost no COVID activity, but Hamilton, Burlington, you know, in your listening area, are really starting to get hit. The Niagara region, uh, Peel is, is a major problem, and, and the areas outside of the downtown core in Toronto are... are, are in major difficulty, as is York region, where my colleagues there said they've never seen their hospital this busy. 
So, you know, if health and safety is the priority, that's really what we have to focus on, but definitely have to support people as they make sacrifices to protect people they don't even know. There's another point to this, and I'm glad you brought up the ICU numbers, and I think people need to hear that more often. Uh, and you mentioned the number of COVID patients that are in ICU right now, but there are other people in ICU as well. And, you know, I don't want people to get the impression that the ICU is reserved just for COVID patients uh, because there are people with cardiac problems and a number of other issues that, uh, that are deserving and need ICU care. Uh, and if you only have so many beds, uh, are we getting to the point now where, where p- people like you and other doctors are going to have to make decisions about who gets what? Well, we're not we're not at the point of triage, which I think is what you're asking. But yeah. you make an important point. So I'll just kind of lay out the numbers to your listeners. So sure. back in back in wave one, when we hit 283 patients in April 12th, there were only 1,300 patients in the ICU in Ontario, and that's because we had shut down all non-COVID related care. Today, there are mm-hmm. 1,745 and 247 patients with COVID, and that's because we've kept the healthcare system open to some degree. And the government may, will say that we have beds, and and it's true they have added beds to the system. However, a bed without a nurse is like a car without wheels. It, it doesn't work. It's the healthcare human resources that will be the rate-limiting step to providing care for Ontarians. The nurses are working so hard. The respiratory therapists, personal support workers, the dietitians, pharmacists, the whole team is working flat out. And more people are getting sick and people are having to isolate because they're case contacts. And people are off because of mental health challenges. So the people who are left behind are working that much harder. So... We don't have an infinite number of beds that can be staffed, and we want to maintain access to non-COVID-related care, which we identified as being important, which I feel as well. However, if you listen carefully to what Dr. Brown said yesterday in the press conference, we are now at the point where we're not only having to delay or cancel elective surgery, but he said that necessary and emergency services are imperiled as well. And that's a situation we haven't faced. That was the situation we tried to avoid with the serious lockdown we had in March. And I truly hope that we don't have to turn away a patient who has life-threatening illness because we're unable to provide care for them in the hospital they show up to. Because I, I, I get the sense, and, I, and I'd like to get your, your read on this as well, Doctor, uh, that in this second wave, which we were already warned about, by the way, that it's probably going to be as bad, if not worse, than the first wave. I, I just get the sense an awful lot of people in the general population are not taking it as seriously. Well, uh, you know, COVID fatigue, sure. You know, inconsistent communication with the government, absolutely. Um, you know, real suffering that people are feeling in their pocketbook, 100%. And also, I think there's a complete disconnect between how an individual's activities, like say you live in Toronto and you go to Vaughn Mill Shopping Mall to buy sneakers on Black Friday, how that activity is completely disconnected from the person who ends up in my ICU because COVID got spread between six people, you know, six degrees of separation, rather, to the person who ends up in my ICU. How people's individual behaviors impact other people, there's no straight-line connection, so that feedback loop is not there. And and that's why people don't necessarily appreciate how their activities as individuals impact the healthcare system as a whole. But because a lot of people feel that way and, and are just going about their business, the cumulative effect of all those interactions among people is why COVID continues to spread out of control in some parts of Ontario. And I think the government needs to emphasize that people need to make the right decisions, but also provide a framework that makes it easier for them to do that, which is why the lockdown in Toronto and Peel is not going to be sufficient. They're going to have to extend those restrictions and perhaps more to other areas if they want the numbers to come down. Well, and and like I said at the beginning of our conversation, Hamilton may well be in their crosshairs because of the numbers uh, which have risen steadily. Uh, there are some jurisdictions, I'm sure you've heard, Doctor, that are actually getting into uh, to to address checking now. In other words, if you want to go into a mall, they 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 want to see your driver's license or something. Where are you from? 
Uh, and if you're from another area, you're not allowed in. Now, that, that's rather stringent, but that was happening. And it's it's kind of akin to what the, the Australian regulations were like. I don't know if there's an appetite for uh, for that sort of thing here in Ontario, but at the same time, uh, well, the old cliche, I guess, is desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, I think that people have a right to be able to flow freely in, in Canada. I don't think we're, we're going to head towards that type of you know, police state, nor do I think we should. But if you think back to kind of before masks became standard, the concept of, of wearing a mask was somewhat of debate. You know, should we wear a mask? You really need to. And then now if you walked into a store and somebody wasn't wearing a mask, you give your head a shake. Like, what are they doing? We need to make it kind of socially unacceptable to be cavalier with public health restrictions. That means if you live in Toronto and you tell your friend that you're going to York region to get a haircut or you know, do something you're not supposed to do, they should say, you know what, you really shouldn't do that because COVID could spread because of those activities. We're not there yet, but that's, I think, would be more effective, the kind of peer pressure, um, uh, socially acceptable or unacceptable activity idea would be more effective than you know, checking people's licenses at, at Steeles Avenue to see if they're going into York Region for shopping. Yeah, and, and again, I you know, I, we read the stuff of what would happen in Australia. They actually were head police patrols there saying you're not allowed out of your neighborhood one guy i think got a ticket for walking his dog around the block and i, I don't think we want to go there and i'm hoping we're not at the point where we have to even consider something like that but again it comes down to, to personal choice and, and personal discipline i guess about what we're supposed to be doing here yeah i mean their lockdown in melbourne was about 111 days and it was serious in our country I, I, i'm not sure that people want to do that and i'm not advocating for that at all but personally i mean People will follow the path of least resistance, and if they feel that they need to do something for their family, whether it's shopping, haircuts, and I'm trying not to pick on these things. It just these are because big box stores are still open in the lockdown regions. But if they, if people are very creative in how they can skirt around the rules, and what I'm concerned about, Bill, is what what's going to happen in mid-January because people are going to congregate over the holidays. And if you're listening to me, please don't. You know, stay with within your household. It really makes a difference. But mid-January, that could be the darkest time of this whole pandemic because um, that's when we're going to start to see the impact on the healthcare system of all those interactions that took place. And Premier Ford can only say so much. At the end of the day, people have to make their own decisions Mm -hmm. to think about their neighbor as opposed to what they want to do over the holidays. Doctor, how much of a, a concern and how much of a factor is the misinformation that's out there, uh, for instance, on social media or some, some irresponsible comments? Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani, of course, uh, the, the Trump's special lawyer, I was positive. He was in the hospital. Uh, he was, you know, yesterday characterizing COVID as now a quote-unquote treatable disease, uh, which is, I think, a massive understatement considering the fact that he got special treatment that most other people that could contract the disease or are hospitalized are never going to get. Uh, and there are people that are going to read that and say, hey, see, this is no big deal. Mm. Well, social media is a bit of a tricky one because, I mean, the way social media tends to work, and I'm not an expert, is that if you feel a certain way about something, say you're, you're, you think COVID may be a hoax or that it may not be as bad, you're going to click on articles and, and links that that kind of emphasize that fact mm-hmm. and reinforce that fact. And then you end up in an echo chamber where everything you read and see is consistent with your preconceived concept. And that works in the other way as well. If you think you know COVID is the end of the world, you're going to kind of um, only receive information that emphasizes or supports that fact, which is why you know, my practice is, and let's take U.S. politics. You know, I look at CNN and I look at Fox News because the, the spin on the same issue can be different. Oh, different. Yeah. And, I, and I think that here we need, we need to focus on what the scientists are saying. 
Um, the politicians will reflect what the scientists say, you know, thinking about economics and other factors which are important, but science is the truth. I think where people are having trouble is that they're seeing the scientific method played out in real time in the media and on social media. And the scientific method means that things get refined over time. Things mm-hmm. will change. Uh, you know, don't wear a mask. Yes, wear a mask. You know, that changed because we didn't have enough masks for healthcare workers. It wasn't because masks didn't make sense. So I think that because the, the scientific method is under the microscope, it allows people the opportunity to say that science isn't real or that it's fake or that they don't know what they're doing. The truth is it's a process, and you're seeing the process played out in real time. And people who are in science or in medicine have no vested interest in destroying the, destroying the economy or limiting people's liberty. We just want people to, to stay safe and not have to ration care for COVID or non-COVID-related care at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a long and very complicated story. I guess I've, I heard that debate many times back in the springtime, and I said, look, we used to use leeches to fight fever, too, and we get, we're smarter now. So uh, we're happening, the same thing is happening with COVID. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as you might have expected, and I can see this from working from home as I have for the last number of months, uh, the retail business is carrying on, maybe not so much in stores, especially in the places where there are lockdowns, but uh, online shopping is big, I'm telling you. (laughs) I can just see that from the number of of trucks that come up and down the street here on a daily basis delivering things. Canada Post is experiencing an unprecedented number of transactions at post offices right across the country as Canadians look to safely connect with loved ones uh, through the mail this holiday season and also of course with uh, some of the purchases that they want to make i uh, want to bring our friend john hamilton into the conversation john is a p- spokesperson of course for canada post it's fascinating to see the, uh, the the metamorphosis that's gone on here in retail uh with uh, people that are working from home and shopping from home too and i know i know that uh, it's a concern to a lot of the people in retail uh, you know just to tie this in with the hudson's bay story but of course as you know uh, even the, some of the major stores now uh, I was saying, look, at shop online because we don't know when the shutdown is going to come again and how it's going to impact us. So there's a lot of this that's going on right now, and it puts a great deal of pressure on, uh, well, agencies like Canada Post. I think we've got John now. John, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Good. Good to ha- talking with you again today. Uh, the good news is it's Christmas season and things are busy here, uh, but you guys must be run off your feet, literally, with the amount of business that you're doing because of the online shopping and, and basically trying to people, I guess, really hook up uh, virtually and, and, and passing stuff back and forth. I, I see your trucks up and down my street all the time here, and I'm sure it's like that in just about every other community in the country right now. Uh, yeah, it's right across the country. This is always our busiest time of year, and we're always proud to deliver the holidays and do everything possible, and we ramp up. But this year, the events have uh, have, have, have changed this Christmas, and while well, it changed just shopping in general, but it's I think it's trends that we're going to see for the future. It's uh, on one hand, Canadians, you know, started shopping more online early on when things started to lock down in March and April, and then it just became a habit, and now they're confident online shoppers. They're buying all kinds of different things. At the same time, small and medium-sized businesses really shifted uh, to online sales, you know, partly, I'm sure, just to keep afloat, but also seeing that that was, uh, they could fill that void as, as, as Canadians started looking for, you know, those local businesses and the smaller businesses they want to support as well. And then, as we've hit into wave two, with you know different parts of the country because we serve the whole thing with you know different parts of the country shutting down or locking down or putting in restrictions in place all for good reasons um you know people saw they weren't going to be able to making those holiday visits and dropping off parcels in person so they're using canada post to connect with loved ones this year so there's lineups at the post office we're constantly seeing uh, more and more trucks pulling with parcels it is incredibly busy we're doing everything possible we can to keep up 
You know, I can remember the old days, and the old days for us, I guess, John, is pre-pandemic, but I mean, even going back a few years beyond that, uh, you'd always hear the announcement from Canada Post just around this time of year, said, if you're going to mail postals, do it before such and such a date, uh, and I think we're probably getting close to it now, and you think, oh, that's, I guess, if you're sending something overseas or something, I guess, yeah, but who does that much, you know, but now that's the mantra, I mean, that's, that's, that's your modus operandi, I mean, everybody's doing it now because of this. How have you pivoted like this? This has put an, an incredible amount of pressure on your employees. It has, and it, they've they've been absolutely incredible right through this entire year. Um, you know, we quickly pivoted in March to put in place um, safety measures, put physical distancing in plants that nobody ever designs a plant to have people you know two meters apart. Mm-hmm. We put that in place. We worked with our unions. We we changed the way we deliver to be contactless. We made changes in our post offices. So. Uh, but at the same time, they understood that they were providing an essential service and suddenly delivering things to people's homes when they were home all the time meant more and more um, than it had in the past. So, you know, we saw just a surge come in this year, but we've uh, and we've worked through it and we've, we've learned and we put other measures in place. But we've maintained that that uh, commitment to safety because we, we deliver to all 16 and a half million addresses. So we have a responsibility to keep the community safe uh, as well. As well as we've looked at this year, we've added for, for the peak holiday season, over 4,000 employees. Uh, we've added extra vehicles, more than a thousand. We've, we've extended post office hours, but no matter what we do, um, there is a limit to how much we can uh, safely process and deliver. So, uh, we are doing our best with the volumes we're seeing, but you were talking about those deadlines. They are uh, guidelines, and usually you can be, you know, and I'm a last-minute guy. It's time to break that holiday tradition. <laughs> Get your stuff in as early as possible. And, and the, the timelines are still pretty good. I mean, we ordered something just uh, last week, I guess it was. I think it took two days, three days, something like that. Not, not bad at all. Uh, I forget even where it was coming from now, but it was delivered to the front door, which, by the way, reminds me, uh, we were talking about pivoting. I mean, you've had to do that, too. I mean, you, you, you're delivering things safely now. It's it's a, a bit of a different methodology now, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, contactless delivery is, you know, we call it knock, drop, and go, because that's essentially what happens. You, you put it on the on the porch, you knock, and you drop, and and you go, but uh, it, it was all, you know, it's getting, we had to think through, okay, well, we used to have to require signatures or we'd yeah. hand over the personal, we call it the personal data term. It looks like a big, awkward phone. Handing that over with a stylus pen, you know, that's, can't do any of that. So how do we do that? So a lot of stuff pivoted to uh, our, our post offices. So they've been busy with people picking up parcels. Uh, we've had to put, uh, you know, safety measures in all our facilities. We mandated masks in all our all our facilities, including post offices. So if you're going, please bring a mask. Um, but it's it's been constantly working and following the advice of the public health officials um, because it's their job to, you know, try and keep us all safe. So you know, we've been following their guidelines, working with the unions and working in our facilities because. You know, you can have every safety measure in, in, in the world in place. It's still a concerning year. So, you know, we, we've talked regularly with our employees, listened to their concerns, trying to find the best way, knowing that there's no perfect solution uh, for all of this. But throughout it all, um, you know, our people have done incredible work. And now we're into the holiday season. 
so far around the country, the weather is is cooperating because that's usually our biggest concern. Yeah. Um, but we're doing everything possible to try and you know end the year on a solid note with uh, with a good Christmas. Well, you guys visit just about as many homes as Santa does in a Christmas season. So uh, I wish you luck with this and uh, stay healthy and stay safe, John. Thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Take care. John Hamilton, of course, spokesperson for Canada Post, who are uh, just crazy busy, of course, because of what's going on with online shopping these days. There's the other companies, too, but Canada Post still uh, outnumbers a number of deliveries uh, simply because of the sheer size of it and where they go. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about waiting and waiting and waiting for health care in this province. And this is very much tied to a number of the topics we've had on the program today, including the meeting that the First Minister said yesterday with the Prime Minister saying we need more money uh, for health care. But uh, how is that being spent? I mean, waiting for treatment has become a defining characteristic of the Canadian health care system these days. In order to document the uh, the caves for the visits to specialists and for diagnostic and surgical procedures in this country, the Fraser Institute has for over two decades now surveyed specialist physicians about 12 specialties in provinces. Uh, the report is called Waiting Your Turn, and the latest edition of it is out. And, uh, well, we want to get some analysis on that. And to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Bacchus Barua, who is the Associate Director of Public Policy with the Fraser Institute. Mr. Barua, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us here today. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. As long as I can recall, uh, just about every election, uh, whether it's federal, provincial, local, whatever it is, anybody that wants to get elected to public office says, I'm going to, I'm going to shorten wait times. You elect me, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that for you. Uh, the report that, uh, that's out right now from the Fraser Institute, we're, we're going the wrong way here. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that sounds like promise that's never really been backed up by actual, um, delivery in terms of policy change. Um, essentially what we've seen for, um, I would say two to three decades is policy inertia. You know, we're trying to throw money at the problem. We have, um, wait time strategies that are focused on one or two areas. But overall, the data is showing that none of this has really worked. Um, in 1993, when we calculated the first national estimate of wait times, the wait time between getting a referral to uh, seeing a specialist to actually getting treatment was about 9.3 weeks in Canada. This year, we measured that same wait time at 22.6 weeks. So clearly, the data is showing that none of that has really worked. And the reason is very simple, because no one's actually looked at a change in policy. You uh, break this down, and I think very effectively, into two basic areas here. A referral from a, a general practitioner, in other words, maybe, you know, your family doctor, for instance, to a consult with a specialist. There's a wait time for that. And then part two of that, of course, is, is the consultation with the specialist to the point where there's actually going to be some treatment for that. And uh, what, when you add those up together, uh, it's an inordinate amount of time. Pain and suffering, is, as you mentioned, there's a human cost to this too, isn't there? That's right. Um, you know, for a long time, a lot of the provinces were only focusing on what's called the second part of the wait, which was the appointment from a specialist to getting treatment. Um, and that wait time is about 12.1 weeks. Uh, but when we actually look at the first half of the wait, how long does it actually get, uh, how long does it actually take to get a consultation with the specialist in the first place? That wait can be as much as 10.5 weeks in, in, um, in 2020. So there's a significant amount of time that it takes just to get to see your specialist in the first place, never mind things like diagnostic tests, et cetera. Um, of course, Ontario does have um, a quite a good wait times website now. Um, after a lot of work. But this is something that's, you know, very difficult to look at across Canada because for a long time, provinces simply weren't actually measuring wait times and they weren't measuring measuring it in a consistent manner either across years or between provinces. And so provincial comparisons are different, uh, are difficult. Uh, comparisons over time to see how well or how poorly you're doing were different. 
Um, and unfortunately, the result is that a lot of patients are waiting for care. And absolutely, there is a cost to waiting time. These are not just benign inconveniences. While some patients can and do wait for treatment without significant consequences, many others will be in pain. Many others will be suffering. Many others will see their condition deteriorate while they're waiting for care for something that might be might have been treatable, but now has become a debilitating condition. So it's it's important for us to remember that these are not just statistics. These are reflecting the actual experiences of people in our healthcare system. Well, for somebody who's in a position like that, uh, God forbid, and you know the condition gets worse uh, from you know bothersome to chronic in situations like that, uh, I, w- I would think that's going to affect the outcome of whatever medical procedure is about to follow. It's up whenever that does happen. Yeah, there have been quite a few, you know, individual studies that are done that do show that. Um, and these are, you know, in, in terms of hospital-level studies. Um, we ourselves in your response have looked at the overall effect on mortality and have found a significant effect. Um, we were only able to find that statistical relationship when it come, came to the female population. But, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the health outcomes are, are one aspect of the situation. There can also be an economic cost uh, in terms of the, the weeks of, the, of the, uh, sorry, the, in terms of the hours of the week that are lost um, that could have otherwise been productive. Um, and there's simply just, you know, the, the mental anguish while you're trying to figure out when you will actually get treated for this condition that you're waiting for. And all of this would, you know, potentially be okay if you're saying, you know, here's a wait time in the public system if you had an alternative. The problem is in Canada, we don't really have an alternative within our borders. Yeah, which is the debate that's been going on for quite some time. I mean, here in southern Ontario, the, the you know the plan B here is always to hop across the border to Buffalo, New York, uh, and see what you can get there. And I, I know people that have actually done that. Uh, and, and it's about time, I guess, that we have to have a discussion about this. And, and I, I don't know if we're ready. I, I, the research that you've done on this, uh, is there an appetite right now? Because I know that this seems to be a very polarizing issue between a hybrid model uh, that some people are suggesting a bit, or the uh, the, the the, well, the model we've been using, I guess, since about 1964 here in Canada, which is essentially uh, public health care for all and, and, you know, no jumping the queue. Uh, everybody just is, is treated pretty much the same. You know, I think one of the unfortunate things about the conversation in Canada is that we tend to have a conversation about Canada versus the United States. And that's a very narrow view of what policy options are on the table. Um, our research, you know, when we look at other countries around the world, we find that there are at least 27 other countries with universal health care that, uh, that all share the same goal of universal health care. Uh, these are countries like, you know, Australia, Sweden, Germany, France, Switzerland. Um, and all of them in general, uh, sorry, not all of them, but there's, there's a set of countries that tend to have shorter wait times. They spend about the same as we do and share that same goal. And I think one of the things that we could start with is to look at what do these countries actually do differently? How do they share the same goal? What do they do differently that results in shorter wait times than we see in Canada? But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of drive to want to do that, though. I mean, you know, I, I know there was a period of time not too long after the 1964 when this, our system, as it was, uh, was put in place that we thought, well, we have the best healthcare system in the world. And, and you know, that, that's debatable, I suppose. Uh, we don't anymore. I, you know, as, as your study indicates, uh, Scandinavian countries, the UK, Australia, so many other places do it better than we do. Why aren't we lo- watching them and why aren't we learning from them? You know, a, a lot of what um, provinces can and cannot do is tied to the Canada Health Act. Uh, yeah. And despite despite how it's portrayed, the Canada Health Act is really a financial tool. 
which dictates the terms and conditions that provinces have to follow in order to get federal transfers. Um, and, you know, it's worded in such a way that it leads to a very risk-averse approach amongst the provinces. They're often quite scared to experiment lest they get penalized for um, for trying something that might contravene the CHA. And that's resulted in an environment where essentially policy has stayed the same for the longest time. It's a situation where we're doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Um, there have been some movements um, in certain provinces. Uh, Saskatchewan's one particular example where um, in about 2008, um, they started something called the Saskatchewan Surgical Initiative. Sorry, they started that in, in 2010. Um, and and they did, they did two things that were very interesting. Um, the first is they started a pooled patient referral system. That essentially meant that um, everybody who needs to, uh, to, to get a referral, they're put into a centralized pool and they're connected with the physician who has the shortest wait time. And of course, you know, if physician, if if patients or physicians wanted a different physician, that would be that would be fine as well. And if they wanted to wait longer, the other thing that they did is they actually started contracting services um, to private third-party clinics, um, and that was just a way to augment the public system while still staying within the confines of the Canada Health Act. Now, what happened in Saskatchewan is, you know, till about 2008, they had the, some of the longest wait times in Canada. It was 28.8 weeks, and um, I think in 2010 it was 26 weeks when when that system started. By the end of that um, uh, process in 2014 and 2015, they actually had close to the shortest wait times in Canada at about 14 and 13 weeks, the only time um, that we've recorded shorter wait times than than Ontario, which traditionally has uh, shorter wait times than the rest of the country like Quebec. And, you know, this was a clear experience where, you know, they implemented something new. They actually looked at a difference in policy and it did work. Unfortunately, it was a band-aid solution because the thing is it was still within the confines of the CHA, within the confines of what uh, the public system can fund. And again, wait times have grown in that province as well. So, you know, I, I think that's one start that, that some provinces could take. But if you really wanted to look at change, you'd have to look at what does Germany actually do differently that leads to shorter wait times? What do Switzerland and the Netherlands do differently? Um, and I think when you start to do that, then the, then the answers become a little bit clearer even if they're a little bit more contentious. But, I mean, I, I don't want to say we're living in the past, but, I mean, we're essentially trying to deliver a 2020 healthcare model with a 1964 body. I mean, you know, with a, you know, aside from a couple of minor tweaks, this is basically the system that was started uh, way back in 1964. And, and I know there have been some minor changes about, you know, pay-in and, and things of that nature. You know, initially we had to pay for service on an annual basis, and in Ontario anyway, and that's changed now. Uh, but but it's, it's, it hasn't evolved uh, the way that many other countries have evolved their systems absolutely and and you know you see that in in many different instances you know for example where we once had some of the the highest ratios of physician to to population uh, we actually now have some of the lowest ratios of that uh, we currently also have um, the low, uh, some either the second lowest or the lowest ratio of beds per capita compared to these 27 other countries with the universal health care um, and of course, we have the longest wait times. And you know, to be clear, this is not for want of funding. We actually rank amongst the highest spenders. Um, but there's a clear imbalance between what we're paying for the system and what we actually get out of it. Um, but again, you know, if we look at those countries that are succeeding, that are spending about the same, sometimes a little bit more, like Switzerland, sometimes a little bit less, like Australia, Germany, we see that they do three things very differently. One is that they have a very different attitude towards the private sector. They see the private sector as a partner in order to deliver on the universal healthcare promise, or they see it as an alternative, as a pressure valve to help alleviate some of the stress and burden on the public system when it's overburdened. 
They also have a very different attitude towards cost sharing. Um, they generally expect patients to share some portion of the cost of their treatment directly, um, either through a copay or a deductible. And of course, they have um, annual limits to ensure that these are never financial burdens on populations, but while still understanding that they provide strong incentives to use these very scarce resources efficiently. And the third is that they fund hospitals based on activity. Um, in Canada, we're still mostly on a global budget model, um, which, you know, it, to put it in an economic sense, makes hospitals see patients as a cost because they're eating into the, the, the budget of the hospital. Whereas when they're funded according to activity, the hospital gets funded for every new, serve, new patient that they serve. Now, it's not to say that any one of these things are going to magically fix Canada or Ontario's healthcare system, but it's certainly some combination of them that has led to much shorter wait times, more resources for about the same spending in these other countries. Is there an appetite for change, though? I, I mean, the, the powers that be, the decision makers, uh, see uh, that uh, that there's it's time to to move forward on this and look at some of these other initiatives. You know, that's uh, you'd have to ask the powers that be that question <laughs> because because I'm, I'm not aware of that. What I can say is that you know, over time, I think Canadians are far more informed of how our healthcare system is doing with with the reports that we do. Um, which are corroborated again by international reports that are starting to come out by the Commonwealth Fund, which shows that Canada lies significantly behind other countries. Um, I think we're hopefully better aware that we don't really just have to have this conversation about a Canadian versus American system. And we're also aware, I think, a little more aware of the fact that there are other countries with universal health care. And it doesn't have to be a situation where we have to fundamentally change the universal nature of our healthcare system, but we need to think about how do we better do universal health care? What are these policies that might work in a Canadian context and hopefully move forward on those? Well, and that seems to be at least part of the solution here to have that conversation. And, and, and you're right. I mean, the initial thing seems to be, and maybe it's a political uh, element to it, that, you know, just throw money at it. Uh, because politicians tend to think in short terms, in three, four-year terms, which coincide nicely with their elections results. But uh, we, we need something that's going to be a, a much more long-term and, and have a foundation for this. And uh, it's 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 going to take some some radical thinking and some people that are going to try to, to, to be innovative about this and maybe that's what they're missing how uh, when you look at these numbers and and, and the, the procedures that are going on things just like mris and i know that a lot of our listeners are getting emails right now how about this Emma? what about mris what about this what about the uh, what about joint replacements uh, they're all in there i know you've done a lot of research about how each one of these is is being impacted by this system uh but we're looking at overall change here i because you're right i think there has been targeted uh, at, attempts in the past to say we want to do something about joint replacements and you know there's been some movement on some of that stuff in different parts of the country but this is this is a a much broader perspective that i think we need to take isn't it absolutely and you know while it's important to 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 sit down and tackle certain areas what where there are the longest waits it can lead to a situation where only that area starts to get measured and everything else kind of falls by the wayside which is why you know for these 30 years We've looked at 12 different specialties consistently. Um, these are non-emergency surgeries, so we're not looking at people who are going to the emergency room in crisis mode, but everybody essentially is trying to get a scheduled surgery. So these are looking at things like ophthalmology, general surgery, but also things like radiation, medical oncology. And we do see, obviously, variation. We see that you know radiation, medical oncology have shorter wait times, about four and a half weeks, and much, much longer wait times for things like orthopedic surgery, which are 34 weeks. And, you know, it's showing us that Canada's healthcare system is doing what it's supposed to in terms of triaging patients. Um, the problem is that, you know, while we're able to help everybody who, who, um, who need 
urgent care, we're completely unable to help everybody else, and everybody else is essentially forced to, you know, have a wait of, I think, what is it, 34 weeks on average in Canada for orthopedic surgery, and similar wait times for things like um, otolaryngology. Neurosurgery is 33 weeks in Canada. And I think, you know, that really puts things into perspective. And then you couple that with things like, and you know, the MRI wait time, it's 11 weeks on average in Canada, five weeks for CT scan, and then that actually starts to mess with um, that triage system as well, because if you can't accurately diagnose the severity of a patient's condition, your ability to triage will also be affected. So this is a long system-wide problem. Um, and, you know, I should say, you know, obviously these numbers have been affected um, by, by the current pandemic. But the thing is, all, all we have to do is just look one year prior. When we look in 2019, before the pandemic ever started, the total wait time was 20.9 weeks, which is, you know, about two weeks shorter mm-hmm. than it is right now. So this is a long problem that's 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 occurred for a long time, and it has been exacerbated by the current pandemic, but it's not because of it. Uh, the report is called Waiting Your Turn, Wait Times for Healthcare in Canada, the 2020 report uh, by the Fraser Institute. We've only scratched the surface here. Uh, you should go and uh, Google that and get the rest of the results. Uh, Bacchus Barrera, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on the show for this discussion. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.